Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Adam Selbst. I listen to punk rock music. I made my own clothes. I was an artist. All right, you guys aren't getting it. Let me... (laughs) That and more. But first, the storystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops. That's the storystudio.org. And if you want to become a member over at patreon.com slash risk or raise your donation, you will have so much bonus content, like more stories, interviews with staff and storytellers, my own personal reflections, and our Patreon has never been more crucial to keeping risk running. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ginger Root behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Flailing. Three fun stories this week. But before we jump in, don't forget to pitch us your scary stories for our Halloween episode this year or tell your friends or family members if they have scary stories to pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, if you're near New York, you might be in the October 20th live show of scary stories. If not, you might just do a radio style story with us. Again, that's risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Kelly Carlin, a story that she recorded with us in Los Angeles a little while back before the lockdown actually but before that we're gonna hear from Amanda Degley a story that she recorded with us way 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 back Amanda is a longtime radio DJ and here she is now with a story we call wet revenge So for most kids, the climax of their high school career, they want to go to the prom, right? And when you go to the prom for girls, you get to wear a pretty dress, and you make them be prom queen, that kind of stuff. Or if you're a dude, you hope to get laid. For me, the climax of my high school career did not take place at the prom, but it took place the night before the prom in 1994. For those of you listening at the podcast, you'll have to bear with me. What I'm doing is I'm about to crouch. So for me, I started out my night before the prom, crouched with my back against the corner, my dress up over my head, and no, I won't flash, I promise, and my panties around my ankles. Maybe I should explain. So growing up, I was always a little bit weird, and I was never really typed to fit in, and I tried for a while, and that didn't work. So the more I tried, the harder it became, and the more weird I got. By the time I got into high school, I was what was known as a goth, but I didn't know I was a goth. I just thought I felt black inside and sad, and now I realize I can still be that way, and I can wear colors. So, although I'm not tonight, as you can see, I'm really, I I have green on, though. So, I tried to go through high school and I tried to adapt and fit in, but because I was a goth, I was labeled a witch. I was told that I was, oh, you practice witchcraft. Oh, you must bury people in your yard. Oh, all kinds of things like that. And it didn't help that my reputation tend to follow me around and people I didn't even know from other schools thought I was a witch. 
And one of the girls that was perpetrating the rumor, actually, I kind of attacked her first day of school. And I said, what do you mean I'm a witch? I'm not a witch. <laughs> Didn't really do much for my reputation. Afterward, when in biology class, like three weeks later, a giant spider crawled out of my book bag. So I was like, oh, I'm really not doing very well. So by the time 10th grade came along, I was more or less established in what I thought was a punk rock goth, which met basically in upstate New York where I grew up, way up. You know, snow, cows, Canada. I was, I'd watch MTV and I would wear my black leather jacket and my Doc Martens and I thought I was cool. And one of my friends from high school is in the front, so I think you remember that phase, I hope not. Um, <laughs> so I, I thought I was cool like every other kid, you know. And when 10th grade came along, I was excited. I was going to continue to lust after the boy I had been lusting after since 8th grade. I was going to suck at math, and I still do. And I was going to be an excellent English student because I loved English class. And it didn't really hurt that the boy I was lusting after was in my English class. So I was like, yeah. So when I got into class, I noticed we had a female teacher. And I said, okay, I'm, this would be great. You know, she's going to be nice. She seems young. Okay, I'll be all right. And because I'm a suck ass, I sat in the front. And I say that with, with really good intentions. Also, I can't really see very well. So good thing I don't see any of you out here right now. So that's great. So I sat in the front. And I said, I'm going to make friends with this teacher because I'm a suck-ass. And uh, it didn't work, <laughs> needless to say. About three weeks into the school year, I was remarking to a friend of mine. I said, I can't spell the word since. I can't spell it. But at the time, I was pronouncing it since. And this teacher, we're going to call her Mrs. C because I would like to call her something else, but that's a four-letter word that you all might be very uncomfortable with. So we're going to stick with Mrs. C. So she comes up to me and she goes, well, no wonder you can't say, you can't pronounce it. You can't even spell it. Oh, and I was like, oh, okay, okay. I've never been yelled at by a teacher before because I'm a suck ass. So I'm just going to uh, say, all right, I'll take my punishment. And to this day, I don't spell since wrong and I don't pronounce it wrong either. A couple of weeks after that, things started rolling and we started doing more work and we had to do an oral book report. And in the oral book report, I mentioned a rape scene. And I should rewind a little bit. She decided she was going to let three members of the class grade each individual student. The class had nine kids in it. If you made one enemy, you're screwed. So in the middle of this whole speech, I said, blah, 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 rape. And this kid Oh, he goes, <laughs> rape. I'm like, really? Really? Rape? What's wrong with you? Rape's not funny. When she picked out later on, she said, I want you, you, and you. She picked the kid I basically reamed in front of the whole class. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't pass that exam. And I got really, really depressed because of this. I was a good student, and I couldn't handle just not being liked by this teacher no matter what I did. And I want to explain to you what she looked like. You know, back then, she was an old hag to me. She had feathered hair and big, like, linebacker, shoulder pad, working woman kind of, you know, Melanie Griffith suits. And this is 1994, so she was a little outdated. And she reeked of just, like, black coffee evil and cigarettes. She was gross. Because I was a suck-ass, like I said. I sit in the front, and she would make examples of me, and she would tap all the time on my desk. I was just like, oh, I can't take this anymore. So finally, I just, I, I got over it. I kind of got out of the class sort of unscathed, but at the end of the year, I was walking by her, and I was in my getup, my, my goth getup, my upstate New York goth getup. She remarks to a teacher, I thought we had a dress code here. I was like, bitch, please, there is no dress code in upstate New York. It's umbros, it's sprayed hay bangs, it's starter jackets, and it's hyper-colored t-shirts. That doesn't happen. So I get out of 10th grade. I had a real traumatic summer. I was, like, I was just completely freaked out. But I, I managed to make it to 11th grade on skate relatively. And I did well. I had a great teacher. We had best English teacher ever in 11th grade. And I said, you know what? This year I'm going to shine. This year I'm going to, I'm going to be a great student and I'm going to get into the honor society because damn it, I'm smart and I can do this. Guess who was the advisor of the honor society? Mm-hmm. And guess who deemed that I was not honor society material? Mm-hmm. However, Honor Society material included a friend of mine, well, if she's listening to this, she won't be my friend anymore, but included a friend of mine that used the word epitome as epitome in a sentence. Yes, she apparently was the epitome of National Honor Society material, and I wasn't. So I said, okay, okay, it's just, it's just high school, it's just high school. Remember those at peak in high school? You really don't do well after high school. You're going to get out of this. Remember, you've seen a lot of John Hughes movies, you know. <laughs> So I was like, all right, whatever. And as you know, we're starting to get to where you have to fill out college applications. And I said, okay, I'm going to do something. I, besides chorus, I'm going to have something on my resume. 
I joined prom committee, because that's a real passive-aggressive way of getting something on your resume without having to do shit. So I said, okay, I'll do this, and I walk in for the first meeting, and guess who the advisor of the prom committee is? Yay, it's Mrs. C. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. So I'm like, oh, I'm just going to avoid her. It's fine. So the night before my junior prom, we're trying to transform our lunchroom into a ballroom. But really all it is is a carpet, linoleum kind of combo room that smells like boiled hot dogs and spoiled milk. We're doing a good job. I don't even remember what our theme was. I do remember it was, we had a teal background and all you can see, and I was wearing a black dress naturally, and all you see is my giant white head in the pictures. It's kind of creepy. I'm like my arm. Anyway, so I'm, I have my hands above my head and I'm hanging up a streamer. And this is for the ladies in the audience and for the gentlemen, I apologize. I felt that familiar gush. And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I just started my period the day before the prom. This sucks. What? No. So I said, all right. Look, this has happened at every important milestone in my life. I've started my period, except for my wedding day. So I said, okay. I'm gonna, I said to my best friend, I'm like, I'm going to have to get a pad. I don't have one. She's like, well, you have to ask Mrs. C to go to your locker. I'm like, oh, my. So I said, uh, Mrs. C, uh, I, I need to go upstairs and get a pad out of my friend's locker because I started my period. And she replied, sucks to be you to have your period on the prom. I got my period last week. Enjoy your prom. I was like, oh, that's it. That's it. So I walk out of the lunchroom and I'm like, oh, I got to do something. I have to stand up for myself. But I'm a student. No one's going to believe me. So I said, all right. Walk up the stairs. And I said to my friend, thank God for my best friend. And she had seen this look on my face before after I got nailed in the face with a hockey stick in school. She knew this look. She's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I said, we're going on a little trip. And we walked down the hallway to her classroom, and I said, keep a lookout right now. And I walk into the corner, and we had one of those progressive schools where it was schools without walls, so some classrooms would have walls, and some classrooms would have just like trays of in cabinets sort of thing. And I went up behind one of those, and I just squatted down, and I pulled up my dress, and I pulled down my underwear, and I pissed the most satisfying, steaming, hot stream of piss anybody in the world ever pissed, and I pissed all over her carpet. And I'll tell you what, I have always been pee shy, and I'm still pee shy to this day, and I always pee all over myself, too, because I'm not really coordinated. I'm surprised I actually made it up here without knocking anything over, but I actually managed to pee and not on myself, and I just said, oh, no, and I just pulled everything back up, and I said, Angie, we got to go, we got to go now, and we ran, we ran all the way down, and we got to the locker, I got my pad, and I went down, and I was just like this the whole time, and I said, okay, okay, this is great, I'm going to get in trouble, but you know what, she deserves it, and I can't help it, whatever. And no one ever found out. You know, like an animal or a criminal, I went back to the scene of the crime. I just kind of sniffed around on the carpet. And I touched the carpet. The next Monday, I was like, well, no one knows. It's all right. And like the following year, like the abuse still continued with this woman. I mean, she didn't lay off. But I said, no, it's okay. I pissed on your carpet. It's okay. But uh, she's never found out. And she is still in the area where I live now. And one of these days, I'm going to bump into her. I'm like, hi, Mrs. C. Do you remember me? I pissed on your carpet. And now, for anybody who actually went to high school with me, if you still have our senior yearbook, and if you flip back to the blurbs where it's all about you, if you see when I wrote Decorating for the Prom, now you know exactly why that was so important to me. And before I leave, I just want to say I still tend to pee on things when I get angry, so you don't want to cross me. Hey, Mrs. C, how are you? This is sopping wet. Oh. Ah! See, I told you that I smelled something, but I thought it was rotten banana, you know? <laughs> oh, Mr. C, I wish you could have seen me. You got the floor. What's up? It's awful. I never saw anything like it. What kind of maniac would do something like this? You just don't like it because it's all wet looking and drippy. Oh. Oh. Don't get wacko on me, Mr. C. So it was the summer of 1981, which was uh, also the year I graduated high school. I went to a a school called Crossroads, which is a local school here. Crossroads is basically, 
an elite college prep school nestled in the bosom of a dirty alleyway in Santa Monica. (laughs) Filled with young men and young women really excited about their future three-picture deals. We were a bunch of, you know, like typical high school. There was the theater crowd, and then there was like the science computer geeks, and then there was the stoners. That was my group, (laughs) the stoners. But most of us were sons and daughters of very famous people. That was me, too. Just in case you don't know, my dad is George Carlin. Anyway. But unlike most of my peers who were spending their summer, you know, looking forward to their future, I was trying to undo my past. You see, I was spending most of my days trying to extricate myself from the ex-boyfriend I had. He was gorgeous, blue-eyed, smart, funny, You know, the kind of guy who, when you walked into a room, all the girls wanted. He was one of those guys. So I was very, very happy that he was my boyfriend when he was my boyfriend. But um, he began to not be so perfect after a while. He began to emotionally and physically abuse me. I didn't tell anyone about this. No one. Not my parents, not my friends, no one. So while most girls my age were, you know, worrying about what they were going to wear to the prom, I was a 17-year-old girl worrying what I would wear to the prom would actually cover the bruises on my arms. He was uh, one of those guys that, you know, one minute he was really smart and funny and cute, and we had eating Haagen-Dazs and taking bong hits and watching SNL, and the next minute he was grabbing my arm and calling me a cunt. And so at age 17, I was like this typical domestic abuse victim. I was twitching at like if someone raised their hand, I was twitching at that and believed everything was my fault and really felt trapped forever and ever. And because I wasn't telling anyone about it, I kind of was trapped and it felt very permanent. And it was my sick little secret, didn't tell anyone about it until finally the situation just got so horrific that I did finally tell my parents and A few days after I told them, the boy showed up at my house, and my dad went into his office and got his baseball bat and threatened to bash his fucking skull in if he ever came near me again. It was one of the proudest moments of my life. (laughs) But I was addicted to him, and I kept going back, even after that. So there was a couple of months where I kept going back. And it was one of those things where, you know, you try to move on. I mean, even if you're not in an abusive relationship, you know, but you're kind of in that on again, off again thing. And you try to move on. You know the person's not healthy for you, but you keep getting drawn back into it. That's the way it was for me. And I would date some other guys. And then I would break down. And I would have a booty call with him and think it would all be perfect. And then think that he would change. And then he never did. And so now in the summer of 1981, after I've graduated high school, I really, really knew that it was time to move on. I was ready to take care of myself. I was ready to be more mature. And I was ready to hang with a fresh group of friends. And so this is when I decided to hang out with Griffin O'Neill and Leif Garrett. (laughs) Now Griffin, if you're not familiar with Griffin, he is Tatum O'Neill's brother and Ryan O'Neill's son. And Leif, Leif Garrett was kind of the not so well-known, but just as important in the kind of Michael Jackson, Donny Osmond, Leif Garrett, triumphant of pop stars in the 70s. Leif was kind of the hipper, cooler, hippie guy. You know, Donny was the Jesus-y guy, and, and Michael was a god, as we all know. One of the things that Leif was known for, he had this hit that was, I was made for dancing all, all, all night long. That was like his big hit, you know, and he went to Japan. He was huge in Japan with that and everything. And I considered these guys kind of like part of the Beverly Hills high crowd. They didn't go to Crossroads. They were the different group of friends. So, you know, for me, this was like somewhat like moving on and being more mature. Like, I'm not hanging out with my Crossroads people anymore. No, I'm hanging out with the Beverly Hills high people. Yeah, I was 18. <laughs> But thinking back on it now, I really don't know exactly how I ended up hanging out with Griffin and Leif on this particular day. The only thing I can assume is that we had been partying the night before and that somehow we'd all either stayed up or we all slept in the same house and then we all woke up and everyone else had plans and the three of us didn't. And so we just ended up hanging out together and, you know, keeping the party going because, well, it was the late 70s and early 80s, and keeping the party going was really, really important. (laughs) But what I do remember about the day 
was being in Leif's Beamer. He had a 730i BMW. And we were driving east on Sunset Boulevard, and we were following Griffin in his little blue and white Mini Cooper. And this is back when Mini Coopers were actually Mini Coopers, not those cute little things they are now, but they were really these cool cars from England, very, very rare. And so Griffin had one of those, of course, because we all had fabulous cars at 18. It was an insane life. And so Griffin's driving in front of us and there was like a little rain shower that morning. So, you know, the road has got a little wet and a little oil on it. And so we're on Sunset Boulevard and we're at the light at Roscomar, which is right near Bel Air. And we're heading east and Griffin rolled down the window and says, watch this. And the light turns green, and Leif and I follow Griffin off the line and approach that big, wide turn at UCLA. And as we make our way around this big turn, Griffin, who's about three car lengths ahead of us, pulls his emergency brake and begins this slow, ballet-like spinning around the corner. And I'm watching in horror and disbelief and a little bit of awe because he's not hitting any other car. It's this beautiful, beautiful, like, physics experiment where he's not hitting anyone, but he's scaring the shit out of everyone who's around him. Leif and I look at each other and like roll our eyes like we're the grown-ups here, you know? And part of me was kind of like, I don't know, I, I admired the kind of the crazy guys, you know? But I did think to myself, hey, I am taking care of myself because at least I'm not in Griffin's car, right? <laughs> I'm not in the car with the crazy guy. I'm safe in Leif's car. And then Leif casually mentions to me that a few years before, while high on quaaludes, he had a horrible car accident that left his best friend paralyzed. But Leif explained to me that he had grown up from the experience, had really matured, and that he was much more careful about driving and getting high now. And I knew this to be a fact, because that very morning, we had all decided to not do the lewds and just take a few bong hits before we got (laughs) in the car. So Leif and Griffin and I end up at an arcade in Westwood, because that's what you did in 1981. You went to an arcade in Westwood. (laughs) And played, you know, Pac-Man and Missile Command and Asteroids, which I was horrible at. I could never get the Asteroids thing. So we're hanging out there and, you know, afternoon turns into evening. And around 7 o'clock, my ex-boyfriend shows up at the arcade. Now, he was also friends with Griffin and Leif, but... I don't think anyone ever knew really what had really gone down between my ex and I. So they didn't know what was going on. They just probably told him, hey, we'll be in the arcade at Westwood. So he shows up and we're hanging out. And as time passes, I can feel that fucking thing happen to me again. It wakes up inside of you and I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe just one more time, you know, for old time's sake. It's like this huge gravitational pull inside of me and it has this mind of its own and it's so fucking powerful. And then I truly find myself needing him and wanting him and then something comes into my mind and I know, no, this is it. I have to cut the cord. I have to figure out a way to cut the connection between him and I, I have to sever it once and for all. I have to sleep with Leif Garrett. (laughs) I know it must happen. This is the only thing that will ever break the gravitational pull between my ex and I, is if I sleep with Leif Garrett. And in that moment, it felt like time stood still and the universe had aligned itself with me in my overall purpose to break away from my ex and grow up finally. It was destiny. I had turned a corner from being a girl who was looking, you know, for men to define me to a young woman who just wanted to put a notch in her bedpost. Once we got bored of the arcade, Griffin suggested that we go out to his house in Malibu. Read Ryan and Farah's house in Malibu. Perfect, I say. My ex says, oh man, I gotta go home. Oh, double perfect. I make bedroom eyes at Leif and say, wow, this is a great thing. We're going to go hang out in Malibu now. Leif totally gets my message. (laughs) Men are so easy. But even better, my ex got the message too. 
So Griffin and Leif and I settle into Leif's Beamer, head out to Malibu. Griffin suggests that we stop at his Coke dealer's house to pick up some blow on the way. There I was, queen of the world, riding on a wave of destiny. I am woman, hear me roar. I pop in the new Steely Dan tape as we wind our way down Sunset Boulevard. Drive west on sunset to the sea. Turn that jungle music down Just until we're out of town This is no one night stand It's a real occasion Oh yeah, you better fucking believe it's a real occasion We eventually make it all the way out to the boo Ryan and Farah are out of town Which means we have full access to everything Vodka, champagne, any weed we can find I walk in the house and I see the wall of Pharaoh that I had heard so much about. It is a 30-foot wall covered in pictures of Farrah Fawcett in every imaginable size. <laughs> I am in awe, and I know that this is a huge moment for me as a woman. Later on, we're all in the jacuzzi, and Leif and I are playing footsie. Things are going well, but Griffin begins to pout. At some point, he pulls me aside and tells me that he's worried about me and doesn't want me doing anything crazy. The champagne nearly shoots through my nose. He warns me that Leif wants to have sex with me, but he probably, you know, doesn't want it to be anything serious. Gee, shucks. (laughs) And it's funny because all I can think of this moment is, gee, these boys are so much nicer than the ones I used to hang out with. Eventually, Griffin crashes, and Leif and I fall on the couch and barely make it to the couch. And and I will spare you the gory details, because I don't fuck and tell, except for this story. (laughs) But I must say that um, there's really not much to spare you from. I mean, even though I was only 18 and Leif was like the third guy I'd ever been with, there was one thing I knew on that night that he clearly was not made for dancing all, all, all night long. It was the worst sex I'd ever had. I know. If I can just save one woman from one disappointment in life, I hope that it is this, that sleeping with a pop star is no way as thrilling as thinking about sleeping with a pop star. So do yourself a favor and, you know, pleasure yourself (laughs) while looking at a picture of your favorite pop star. Well, the next morning, not wanting Griffin to find us on the couch, kind of awkward. I mean, you know, Leif was being a gentleman. We found our way up to Ryan and Farrah's bed. And here in the daylight, with most of the drugs having worn off, we met each other in a very, very different place. And yes, Leif did find a way to redeem himself from the night before. And it was good. Afterwards, we were laying there on Ryan and Farrah's bed, and I just had to laugh and just take in the moment. I mean, it was really very, very surreal. I may have grown up as the daughter of George Carlin and have had many a brush with fame, but nothing, I didn't think anything, could ever top having sex with Leif Garrett in Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett's bed. (laughs) Or so I thought. Ten minutes later, Leif and I find our way to their shower. As I begin to let the water pour over me, I ask Leif to hand me some shampoo, and he does. Farrah Fawcett shampoo. No, I mean it. Farrah Fawcett brand shampoo. So there I was, washing my hair next to Leif Garrett with Farrah Fawcett shampoo under Farrah's faucet. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Leif Garrett behind me now. I remember Dan Savage shared a story on the show years ago where he said that when he was in high school and had a girlfriend, when he was having sex with her, he would pretend she was Leif Garrett. And of course, we just heard from the fabulous Kelly Carlin, who you can find on Twitter at Kelly underscore Carlin. I told Kelly, one of the reasons that Risk exists is because it was a sort of a metaphorical rebellion against my mom. Because my mom, throughout my entire growing up and when I was on television, like she always insisted that the art that I make not be in any way offensive or sexual or, you know, that it should be very, very family friendly. Especially every time a new episode of The State, my sketch comedy show, would show up on MTV, mom would watch it and be just beside herself because there might have been some sort of reference to sex or something like that in the show. So I told Kelly Carlin the mantra that my mom used to repeat to me over and over and over again well into my 30s. She used to say, Stop being like George Carlin. Be like Bill Cosby. So yeah, that advice aged well. It was when I was 39 and I was just at wit's end. You know, I had tried everything to get my career going again and nothing was working. So finally I decided to create this show, Risk. And I considered it kind of an F you to my mother's voice in my head. Finally just saying, no, I'm gonna lean into who I really am in an uncensored way. Go all out with it. And I was so tickled that Kelly said her dad would have loved that story. And before Kelly, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, on September 15th, the Risk Live show is at Caveat in New York City. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and it will be simultaneously live-streamed on YouTube. You can get tickets at risk-show.com tour. And our next one is on October 20th. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? Come find me at kevinallison.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story does not come from a Risk Live show. It comes from a live show of The Artichoke up in Beacon, New York. The Artichoke is a fabulous show. And listen, on September 18th, they have a great cast. And with a video ticket, you can watch it live for a full month thereafter. Look them up at artichokeshow.com. You have heard both Drew Prohaska and John Blesso on Risk before. They produce The Artichoke Show and they do a fabulous job. This particular story, recorded at The Artichoke, 
is by Adam Selbst. Wonderfully funny guy. Great to have him on the show. Here's Adam Selbst now with a story we call My Summer in Showbiz. So, in 1992, I was 17 years old, sitting in Mrs. Buchanan's civics class. I don't know if anyone else knows Mrs. Buchanan. Um, probably not. I don't remember her name, so I just made that up. So, But in Southside High School, Rockville Center, Long Island, you would not graduate without passing Mrs. Buchanan's civics class, and you would not pass Mrs. Buchanan's civics class until you had registered to vote. She loved voting. And, you know, I felt cool about voting. Whatever, I was planning to vote, but this was the day. She was passing out, like, the little leaflets so that we could register to vote. And she gave us the spiel, you know, she recommended that we vote for a primary party so that we could cast our votes in primaries. And Mrs. Buchanan and I, you know, we were cool. We got along pretty well, which is why I was surprised when she said the next thing, which is that while she recommended we vote for a primary party, she also recommended highly recommended that we register as Republicans. <laughs> Let me just explain, at 17 years old, I, I grew up Rockville Center, Long Island, is like the hub of like Republican stuff going on. Like 95% of the kids in my class were gonna vote Republican. Me though, I listened to punk rock music. I made my own clothes. I was an artist. All right, you guys aren't getting it. Let me. <laughs> Let me bring you into my world. I had, at that point, um, I was creating a piece of art where I pinned up a piece of flank steak to wood and I was documenting its decay. And I called that, unironically, Caucasian consumer. <laughs> yeah, right, didn't see that coming, did you? I was living on the fucking edge. I, I was most certainly not gonna register as a goddamn Republican. Until she explained why. You see, in Rockville Center was part of the town of Hempstead, and the town of Hempstead was controlled by Republicans, and if I wanted one of those cushy beach jobs that, oh, Jesus Christ, all of us wanted, they checked. And if I wanted one of those, I would register as a Republican. So I became a Republican. A year later, as a Republican and my cushy beach job, I learned the first couple of rules of beach camp. You're Republican at beach camp. I met Jimmy, who was my supervisor. Jimmy was 96 years old. He had <laughs> full-on dementia. And as near as I could tell, Jimmy's actual job was to wander around setting random fires. <laughs> I learned an important lesson from Jimmy that day, which is that whatever I did at this job, I could not be fired. <laughs> Which was good, because it had only been one day, and I was not popular. I don't know what I did wrong. I think it happened at lunch when I suggested that, you know, to Ryan, that possibly maybe the Irish were not the most oppressed people in the history of the planet. <laughs> they asked me who was, and I said, you know, I, I, you know, I tried to compensate. I don't know. But you know what? They're probably not around anymore. But it was too late. I had lost the crowd. I was deeply unpopular. It was something that I, you know, grimly familiar with. A couple days later, my boss Jack pulled me aside and he said, Hey Adam, I got, I got a new job for you. How would you like to work alone for the rest of the summer? I said, well, what do you mean, Jack? And he brought me into the garage and he said, how would you like to drive this puppet bus around Long Island putting on puppet shows for little kids? for the rest of the summer. And I know what he was saying to me was that nobody likes you and we want you to go away. But what I heard was really clear. Showbiz. <laughs> Kid, we think you got it. 
Which is why I was really disappointed to learn that I would not be putting on the puppet shows. I was just going to drive the puppet bus. A professional puppeteer would be putting on the puppet shows, which is funny because while we had a professional person to operate the puppets, I was not licensed to drive the puppet bus, nor had I read the instruction manual, nor did I know any of the rules of the road. And in fact, the one time they took me out into the parking lot to try the puppet bus. If I backed up, the trailer would unhitch, potentially putting hundreds of puppet lives at risk. (laughs) But folks, the puppeteer was licensed. (laughs) Nevertheless, I was excited. So I'll let you in on how this whole shenanigans works, is that I would meet the puppeteer at the beginning of the day. Um, she would say hello, and I, you know, I would hook up the thing to the, you know, all the puppets, the trailer, to the puppet bus, and I would head off, and she would follow me. I would take the Southern State Expressway, which it turns out is illegal, but I didn't know that because I wasn't licensed. <laughs> And the first day, this is 1993 now, so I don't know if you remember this, but before there was like Easy Pass or Fast Pass or whatever it's called, there used to be these like sort of like proto-robotic tollbooth things where it was just a basket and a robot and you would fling change in it. And if you got the right amount of change into the basket, like you'd win a prize and the arm would come up. And my plan on the Southern State Expressway was to drive around this because I worked for the goddamn town. And they would let me through, but I wasn't paying attention. I was a little flustered. I could barely operate this giant machine. So I was driving down, and I ended up in the robot tollbooth lane that you can't argue with, and the puppeteer blocked me in in the back, uh, and I didn't know what to do because I didn't have any change. I was 19 years old, and I was totally broke, and they were only paying me like $3 an hour or whatever back then. It was ridiculous. So I got out of the truck to go and talk to the puppeteer, maybe get her to back out, give me some change, whatever, we'll figure it out. When I see her wildly gesticulating all over the place, look behind you, look behind you, and I turned around to discover the puppet bus had accidentally slipped into drive (laughs) and had become trundling towards the toll booth. And as I watched in horror... It crashed into the arm of the toll booth, catching it into its grill, tearing off the back of the whole toll booth, and I watched it disintegrate, utterly destroyed. And still with the arm in its grill, the puppet bus with the trailer full of puppets behind it began slowly rolling down the gangway to merge into the the Southern State Expressway. on this glorious Tuesday morning. So here's the thing I didn't know about toll booths. Do we have any toll booth operators in the audience? Great, so this is gonna be new for all of you also. Here's the thing, if you utterly destroy a toll booth, it sets off an alarm. I know what you're thinking, it's not like a car alarm, it's like an air raid siren. So people began to panic, and they began crawling out of their cars to look at what was happening, and what they saw was an empty puppet bus with the trailer and the arm in it flying towards 500 cars and me running after it screaming, no, please, oh my God, the puppets. This was my first job. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that to date, this is the most athletic achievement I've ever had. But I caught up to that goddamn thing. I Indiana jones my way into it, and I put it in park firmly. And then I firmly pulled the parking brake, which it turns out is necessary. If I was licensed, perhaps I would have known that. And I walked back to the toll booth, and I sat down on the stoop, and I began to cry. Because while... I wasn't popular at this job, and I wasn't good at this job, and this was my first job. It was also a job I really needed. I was relying on that $3 an hour, and I knew I was about to be fired. Jimmy was 94. He'd been working there for a 1,000 years. He could afford to set fires wherever, but probably not me. And the person uh, who works at the toll booth, the one person who was like not the automatic robot, thing, you know, the troll that lived beneath the toll, came storming out with the broken pieces of the toll booth in his hands, and he skidded to a stop in front of me, and I could see him like gearing up like a pitcher, goes to throw a pitch to yell at me, and then he saw my blue Parkfield worker t-shirt, and he goes, ah, 
and he threw the pieces down. He goes, God damn it. You're a town of Hempstead employee, aren't you? And I looked up and I was like, yes. And he goes, do you know how expensive these goddamn toll booths are? You can't keep doing this. <laughs> I looked up and I said, what? This is my first time. He goes, Jesus Christ, kid, I don't care. Let's get the hell out of here. I said, what? He goes, get out of here. So I got up, I ran off, and I scrambled into the puppet bus, and I put it into drive, and I started driving away. Not only did I not get fired, nobody even told my boss. <laughs> and I understood the power that comes with like political connections, that I couldn't be fired. And we got to the park where we were gonna put on the puppet show and the whole time this poor puppet lady on her first day of work has been following me and she came up and I'm happily setting up the sound equipment and she says, you know, I, I saw what happened at the toll booth. I said, yeah, that's how we get out of paying for tolls around here. We're gonna be doing that every day. And she laughed for a second, but I held her gaze until I saw this like a spark of fear in her eyes that comes from when you realize like your one coworker that you know is completely unhinged and doesn't fear any consequences. It was glorious. So here's the thing. I wish I could tell you that I did face consequences from that. I wish I could tell you that like, my chickens came home to roost and I learned a valuable lesson. I, it's not true. Nothing ever happened. I could do whatever I wanted at that job. No one would ever fire me. I, I will tell you this though, I did learn an extremely valuable lesson. And this has held true for like the 25 years since I've had that job. In that job, as in life, it is so much more important to be politically connected than it is to be talented. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. is all for this week's episode folks this is claptone with peter bjorn and john behind me now and we just heard from adam selbst folks who out there is from seattle or portland pitch us your stories and you might be included in our seattle show or our portland show our seattle show is on november 18th 
Our Portland show is on November 19th, so if you pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions, you might be in one of those shows. And if you go to risk-show.com slash tour, that's where you could get your information on going to see one of those shows. Don't forget to follow us on our socials on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And pretty much everything you want to know about us, you can find at risk-show.com or over at our school at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. 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 Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. Hey, let's go get some ass. Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Toxic motherfucker tits. Shit piss fuck kind of toxic motherfucker tits.